Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Mingoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see what we're working on and see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last four years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing and want to support it financially, please consider donating at renewthearts.org forward slash donate. Why is it so hard to write redemption stories that feel natural and believable? So often we hear conversion stories in film and fiction and think, man, this feels contrived. But how do we tell stories of redemption so that even those who don't believe will at least believe that we believe? In this podcast, we wonder, shouldn't Christians be better at telling redemption stories? So I want to tell a little story. A redemption story? Mm, well, actually, this is kind of not a redemption story. Oh. It's kind of a sad story. It's sort of a tragic story. Are you about, allowed to tell that kind of a story? I think so. Okay. I think so. We're about liberating Christian creativity. Oh, that's right. Okay. Uh, Nikolai Gogol, which many of our listeners might not be familiar with, was a Russian magical realist who was extremely influential in the literature of Russia. In fact, Many authors that you might know, like Tolstoy and uh, Dostoevsky, credit Gogol with mm. sort of the beginning of Russian romantic literature. Magical realists, so like yeah. Harry Potter? No. <laughs> anyway, uh, Nikolai Gogol was not a believer, and he wrote a story, or he began a story called Dead Souls, and he finished the first part of the story. And it is an extremely detailed, luscious description of feudal life in Russia. In fact, a lot of historians talk about how Nikolai Gogol's description of feudal Russia is so good and so replete that it's almost the only history of the period that's necessary. It's oh, a wow. really wonderful thing. He, he, he wrote this wonderful picture of this petty criminal who is going from feudal property to feudal property in feudal Russia in order to accomplish his petty criminal scheme and elevate himself to a status of the aristocracy. His name was Chichikov, which means cough, basically, and like a sneeze like oh. in uh, Russia. So anyway, he's a pathetic figure. But Nikolai Gogol paints him with just exquisite detail. In 1840, Gogol had finished the first part of Dead Souls. Mm -hmm. And he became a Christian. He was converted. He said, for whatever reason, that for him, Christ became God. Okay, this is like his conversion story. <laughs> and he looks at part one of Dead Souls, which he had written as an unbeliever. And he sees that he has described Chichikov's problem extremely well but he has this idea that maybe he will be able to paint Chichikov's redemption. That even though Chichikov is the most petty, most pathetic criminal sinner that ever there was, surely there was a way to, to tell the story of his redemption, 
um, so that people could see that even the most pathetic, even the most vile, the most mean sinner that ever there was could still be changed by the transforming power of the gospel. And that's a difficult task. So he has to set, he, he has the task before him to, to paint a realistic, a realistic, believable story believable of how conversion this guy, of Chichikov. Yeah. He started it over and over and over and over again. In fact, it was sort of the project from his conversion to his death that he never finished. Ah. Yeah, so Dead Souls, if you get a version of Dead Souls, you'll read the first part and it feels very complete. But if you read most modern versions, what they will have are fragments of part two that were actually preserved by his friends Mm -hmm. because he was so unsatisfied with all of part two that he committed every manuscript he wrote that he had his hands on to the flames. Mm. And the only manuscripts that survived were ones that were saved by his friends um, who wanted to preserve the work of a genius Mm -hmm. because he was clearly a genius. And many historians after that um, have sort of blamed Gogol's inability to produce anything of any literary value after his conversion on his conversion. The fact that he was a Christian. Right, that he became a Christian and all of a sudden his artistic power was entirely vitiated. <laughs> Which is how it works. When you become a Christian, <laughs> you just can't you're a terrible anymore. artist, apparently. <laughs> right. But what's interesting is that there are other examples of artists who in the process of their conver- conversion found it very difficult to write or work in the arts. Uh, T.S. Eliot is another example. Mm. He had written The Wasteland, which was and still is considered a classic of modernist poetry. And he became a believer. And a lot of people have criticized the work he did after his conversion as just being subpar to the kind of genius work he did beforehand. And so it seems to be a problem. In fact, even a genius as great as Dostoevsky very rarely even attempted to tackle the conversion story. Mm-hmm. Um, he, in Crime and Punishment, he has Raskolnikov, the main character, become uh, a Christian in the end. But Dostoevsky's documentation of that in Crime and Punishment is literally a paragraph. Oh, it, it is weird. like the whole entire book is about the presentation of the problem. And Raskolnikov's conversion is basically just an epilogue. It's in the epilogue and it's just this very short little paragraph where he says something along the lines of all of the ways in which he grew would fill a book on their own, but that's not the purpose of this story and the present story is done. Ah. Yeah, seriously, that's a what little he did. Bit of a, so he just copped out. Say, yeah, he I was copped about to say, can you say a cop he did. out in he reference copped to out. him? And he attempted to do a better um, conversion story, I think, in uh, Brothers Karamazov. That was, that was his final work, and I think that he attempted to do something more. But Brothers Karamazov is also a very, very, very long novel, mm-hmm. and the development of the characters within the novel is very slow. Mm-hmm. And so it was like Dostoevsky recognized most people at the height of their craft recognize that conversion stories are really hard to tell well. Gogol couldn't even do it. Mm-hmm. Gogol attempted it as a literary genius and failed. Like seriously, he failed. He, mm-hmm. he was never satisfied with any of that. And part of the problem is that if you think about even unbelievers, even unbelievers, uh, unbelievers who write literature, um, the problem of sin is a very natural 
and easy to describe reality. Mm-hmm. Like even unbelievers will not disagree that we're living in a broken world, because in a dark so world. It's so evident. In fact, you have this, you know, Chesterton in, in, uh, in Orthodoxy says that sin is a fact as practical as potatoes. That, that no, very few people will deny sin. Now they might not call it sin, but very few people will deny that there is a problem with the human race. There is right. brokenness in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of a, a necessity for drama. Something has to be wrong. Right, there has to be some kind of conflict. Right. Yeah, and so, but then when you're talking about, okay, everybody can agree. In fact, everyone pretty much does agree that human beings are pretty garbage. Right, they do garbage things. If you were to paint a picture of a garbage human doing garbage things in fiction or otherwise, most people would be like, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe that. And I'm talking, I mean, if you go and reread some of these stories or you watch some of these movies where they're talking about the, the you know, the depths of depravity to which men sink, to which humans sink, you're looking at it and you're going, I believe that. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. There's a, it's almost like not a bridge too far. Right. Like if you were to say, hey, once there was a guy who exterminated millions of a particular race of human being, you know, in his frenzied attempt to purify the white race. And you're like, oh, yeah, actually that happened. Right. <laughs> like that actually happened. Oh, okay. So we have right. plenty of source material. We have plenty of source material <laughs> to be like, yeah, that's believable. Yeah. I believe that. And yeah. and out of that springs a lot of, uh, you know, from that source material. Sure, yeah, there yeah, are plenty of tons, stories you tons of great stories you can tell, and they're very believable, and no one's going to deny them. It's like believing men are demons. Yes, easy enough to do, but believing that human beings can actually be transformed. Chesterton puts it like this. He says, "The dirt of sin is undeniable. What most people." have a problem with is the water. Mm-hmm. How does a person who is immured in the problems of sin actually be transformed? Mm-hmm. Part of the problem with writing conversion stories is that that process isn't natural. Right, it's completely, in some senses, unbelievable, Right. always. Yeah, it's always going to be <clears throat> because there's this supernatural thing going on and you're looking at it going, I don't, that doesn't feel right. Yeah, I know right. human beings do bad things, but that a person could be bad and then become good, like be transformed, it's be unnatural. redeemed. It's unnatural and it doesn't, it's so hard to write it in a way that's believable. Because it's unnatural. Because, because it's unnatural. It's, it's so against, it well, doesn't it's, follow. Against, it's against a fallen human nature. So it feels contrived. Right. And you add to that the problem that when you become a believer like Gogol or like Elliot, Mm -hmm. you recognize that the reception of Jesus is such an important central thing Mm -hmm. that you desperately want to use the work that you're making in order to convince unbelievers to come to Jesus. Right, because it's so important. In fact, a lot of Christians would say that... uh, I've had this discussion with a lot of people. It's like, well, you can have ugly art and you can mention sin, but what you have to do is provide the a solution. moment of, of redemption, which as an aside, I would say is not always necessary for each piece. 
I agree. I, uh, there, there are books in the Bible that do not end on a high note. There are and, also Psalms that are completed. I, I think, what is it, Psalm 98, which ends with all of my friends are darkness. So <laughs> I, I don't think. It's not, it's, so, so um, one of the, you know, our mission is to liberate Christian creativity and, and remove non-biblical restrictions. And I think one of those is that you have to have redemption. That said, it is clear that redemption is very important to us. Oh. And although you don't have to have it in every single piece, the importance that it has in our faith would probably drive most Christian artists um, naturally to portray it whenever they are led to, exactly. which is probably going to which be more be often. Pretty often, not. yeah, because they recognize how important it is. Um, it's still hard to do well, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, it's not just a Christian problem. Um, I was thinking about this. I watched the movie Precious. Have you seen the movie Precious? I have not. It is a really great. Uh, di- di- I don't know. Great. It's it's terrible. It's it's extremely horrific. I'm getting mixed signals. Depiction. Yeah. No. It's it's very well done, but it's a depiction of this uh, this young woman's basic struggle, mm-hmm. her abuse, the way she's abused, and she's attempting to overcome that abuse. Mm. The depiction of the abuse is believable. Okay. The depiction of the way that she is saved via social worker, mm-hmm. not terribly believable. Mm. And the, obviously the movie has a certain agenda and the agenda becomes apparent in the solution that's provided. Gotcha. And that's really the problem with conversion stories is that you think as a viewer or as a listener, what is the agenda of the of the creator? What mm-hmm. is the agenda of the artist? Are they trying to convince me to go down some road or to take some solution or to take some medicine that I'm not really wanting or willing uh, to have or to take? Right. And this is not just a Christian problem. You see this everywhere. Most movies... I mean, I mean you want to provide conflict re- resolution. It's, it's innate. There's a sense of us that wants to end... Where you know the trouble, well, how the do trouble, we make the trouble right? Right to right the wrong. So yeah. how do how do we do that? Right. So yeah, it's not. You're right. It's not just a Christian problem. In any story where there's conflict, which is any story where you want resolution, salt, you're gonna want to try to figure out how things are made right again. Yeah, and let's be frank, unbelievers are not good at this. They actually are not. Mm. They are they if if they stick to the plot and they just allow the circumstances to resolve it for them, then you have sort of a happily ever after kind of situation. That's not a rule. It's not a rule. It's not at all. It, and it doesn't, it, and it isn't even believable. I mean, how many people have wondered about how well Prince Charming and Cinderella's marriage actually was after <laughs> they you know, went off in their cart? You do wonder about that because you know that the circumstances resolving themselves are not necessarily the resolution of the problem. Because you recognize that the problem is not circumstantial. That the problems created are character-oriented. So the issue is not how do the circumstances get resolved, which tons of stories will do that. Mm -hmm. The issue is how does the character be transformed? I'm trying to think of how that applies to the Cinderella story. It doesn't. Because Cinderella is good. And Prince Charming and is, good, is good. And always is good. Right, right. And right. there's no there's and, only a situational conflict. There's only a situational conflict that is situationally resolved. Mm-hmm. But when you have a character conflict, 
which is more realistic because there are very few people who aren't mixed bags. Right. So you don't you, have entirely good people versus entirely bad people. No, never. And that's the Except thing. Except sometimes in Lord of the Rings. Fair, exactly, because it's a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. Lord of the Rings is a fairy tale. He copped out of the real need for transformation. In fact, I challenge you to show me redemption in Lord of the Rings. He didn't attempt it. Well, now, hang, hang on. What about um, Borm- Boromir? Boromir, tragic yeah. death. But he... Maybe. He, I he, will grant that maybe, but the greatest opportunity that Tolkien had for telling a redemption story in Lord of the Rings is Gollum. And Gollum slash Schmeagol goes into the fires of Mount Doom clutching at his idolatry. Right. That, he, that character for a moment feels like it possibly he might be redeemed. Right. But eventually he sinks down into his baser nature. Hang on. What about the king that was um, lied to by the uh, worm tongue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, even in that case, he was good. He was a good He never king, ceased to deceived. be good. He never ceased to be good. He was, he was under the sorcery of Saruman. So, you know, like almost all the characters, I mean, think about this. There's an entire race. Like, think about this. How about this? Is it possible that an orc could ever be good or a goblin could ever be good in the Lord of the Rings? Is there, is there a case of, a, of an orc who decided, you know, actually the dark side is not so cool and I'm going to go over and fight with the humans. In Star Wars, however, there is a stormtrooper. <laughs> <laughs> but even in that, you have, again, a fairly simplistic uh, version of morality that's even self-contradictory uh, concerning the Force. But yeah, we could get into that at some other time. <laughs> we'll do that. Um, on, we'll dedicate a whole episode to the redemption of the stormtrooper. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very difficult <laughs> to tell a conversion story. And, and I would not consider the resolution of a plot to be a true redemption story. The resolution of a plot is, you know, it's resolving circumstances, but I'm talking about telling the story of the transformation of a character Mm -hmm. from a position of wickedness to a position of righteousness. All right. Now, that is, and even with Boromir in Lord of the Rings, he may have just recovered his initial nobility, which for a moment he was tempted away from. Right. Um, There's no sense where, like, a character who has fallen badly who has become a different thing. Mm-hmm. Right? If we're wrong, yeah. I want an email. Oh yeah, send us an email. Cuz I want Tell us. I, I I I want that character in Lord of the Rings. So, if you're but, a buff, shoot us an email. Yeah, but I don't think Tolkien's purpose was to tell a redemption story. Mm-hmm. His purpose was to tell a fable of the conflict between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And in those terms, he succeeded. Black and white terms are black and white terms are easy for that kind of construct. But when you're talking about okay, um, how do we tell the story of a person who was once bad who becomes good? Very few Christian authors in the history, seriously, in the history of literature, have been able to accomplish the telling of a conversion story in a believable way. So, and there are a few pitfalls. There are a few. There, what I would consider a few problems, and most of them have to do with our eagerness to convince. Mm. And so, what I would say, if you want to avoid some things or notice some things in redemption stories that weaken them, here are three things that I think are fairly typical of badly told redemption stories. Hit me. Okay. 
One is cheesiness. Secondly is preachiness. And third is abstraction. So how do you define cheesiness? How do you, how do you, uh, like, how would you qualify cheesiness or how, rather, how would you quantify cheesiness? It's hard to quantify. It's hard to tell exactly the point at which something becomes cheesy. I know when I see it. Yeah. (laughs) But, but it is the case that you're talking about the Holy Spirit coming from heaven and converting a person's soul. Mm-hmm. It's hard, you know, your temptation is to overstate the case. Have trumpets blowing from the heavens and the sky ripped open and God the Father reaching down and like a dove fire like coming upon his head and like or even words more, <laughs> resounding into the edges. A more know? subtle but equally on the nose, uh, a sun-dappled field. Exactly. Knee-bent in prayer. Knee-bent in prayer and, you know, and you have this... <laughs> Not this that there's anything wrong with Dramatic that. change. Yeah, sometimes that's the way it happens. The, the problem is not that, that that's some, sometimes the way it happens. The problem is what's the point of the art? If your point is actually to present conversion to whom? Well, to the believer in a way that's encouraging and to the unbeliever in a way that's convicting. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then your descriptions, your, your depictions... What you need to stick to is what Flannery O'Connor would have said too, which is the the matter of it, the dirt of it, right? The 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 material of it. If In fact, a, one of her greatest criticisms of Christian writers is that they got too heady grand. or ethereal. They got or way grand too grand, idealistic. They didn't stick to the dirt, the details. She said that, um, if I remember correctly. Uh, the writers of novels or of fiction are very boring people right. because they're constantly observing the minutia right. of life and recre- can can accurately recreate a story or just create a story because they're so familiar with the So details. observant. Right. And in order exactly. to keep from being cheesy, you must be observant. Mm-hmm. You need to be collecting dialogue. You need to be collecting scenarios. You need to be collecting all of the material of real life so that you can paint these pictures in a way that looks like real life. Um, Again, bringing up Dostoevsky, in Brothers Karamazov, Alosha's great uh, transformation of submission is depicted by Dostoevsky in an extremely simple way. Alosha gets down on the ground and kisses the dirt. Hmm. And... I, I think that's actually a really good description, even considering the dirt, mm-hmm. this idea of submission to the way things actually are. Right. Right. Not not trying to overstate it, not trying to like add to the way God wrote it, add to the way God made it. Just tell the story how you see it, how you hear it, how you taste it, how you smell it, how mm-hmm. you feel it. T- tell the story exactly as it, it has occurred to the greatest of your ability and it might seem like understatement, but when a person is gifted with the spirit to see what's really going on there, it's going to explode. It's, it's just going to bloom in their heart mm-hmm. with uh, extraordinary profundity. And the other is preachiness, which is sort of connected to cheesiness, but it's a little different. Um, being preachy is being overly concerned to convince or to persuade your listener. 
You know, uh, again, let's bring up Dostoevsky. He's a genius. If you haven't read Dostoevsky, go read Dostoevsky. Everything he wrote is great. Um, one of the critics, unbelieving critics of Dostoevsky, who was a fan, uh, Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin, said that Dostoevsky's writing seemed like he didn't write it. Dostoevsky's writing seemed like he was merely recounting like what retelling. he saw. Yeah. And because of that, his, his characters disagree with him. They mm -hmm. say things he doesn't agree with. Mm -hmm. They act in ways different than he is. In fact, Bakhtin says that Tolstoy was monologic and Dostoevsky is dialogic, meaning Dostoevsky, it's almost as if there's an argument going on between the characters that he created. Mm -hmm. That there's almost like these multiple perspectives and multiple views coming out from these characters that he created. It's like he doesn't even have control of these things. Right. He's just putting them onto the paper and they're speaking for themselves. Right. That is, a, 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 I think, a submitted trust to, to the Lord that he will use the truth and to accomplish- And speak through reality. And speak through reality to yeah. accomplish whatever his will is, and you don't have to control it. Because the other end of that is characters that feel, and we can say contrived again, but the feeling that you get in that kind of a character is like, oh, this is being manipulated. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't- I, and and I, they're trying I, to manipulate me. Yeah, I feel I feel this is headed in a direction almost like it's uh, predictable. It's like oh oh I see where this is all going. This character is a tool yeah. for a message that's pretty obvious. Right, he's a bad guy. He's having a bad life. The good guy for a period of time wasn't doing the right thing, and his life was going bad. But then he did the right thing, and now everything's okay. That is the current <laughs> redemption <laughs> that's formula. The, yeah. And so that, that's preachy because it feels like you agree with me or you do what I'm doing and then everything will go well with you. Maybe don't say that. Maybe you say, hey, you agree with me and you come into the church and things are going to be bad for you. Things are going to be hard for you, but it's going to be worth it. Mm -hmm. And how do I know it's going to be worth it? Because God is good. And how do I know God is good? Because listen to this story. Here's a horrible story. Mm -hmm. Here's a terrible story. It's my life. <laughs> and uh, and God worked through these circumstances and right. worked through my sin right. in order to display his grace. I know, practically speaking, the most effective songs that we've seen produced through Renew the Arts and the Nehemiah Foundation, uh, almost 100% of the ones that we've gotten the best um, feedback from as far as like, really encouraging people or influencing, they were all written from like real events or real uh, life happenings that inspired a particular story. Uh, like Where you if, select and arrange in mm -hmm. order to present a truth that maybe isn't apparent to the average viewer mm -hmm. on the material things that they're seeing, but once you present it in that way and you structure it in that way, you select it in that way, all of a sudden the truth becomes apparent. Right. Yeah. So we were talking about the pitfalls of cheesiness. Preachiness. And then the third one was abstraction. And uh, especially- Well, this is basically what we were just talking about. It was, about. yeah. So Because you have the details in yeah. the, the minutiae that are Stick with the important. details. Exactly. Don't Stick tell. With the details. Well, I mean, my, my poetry professor, who was not a believer, but he's a lovely man. He died in February. I love this guy so much. He used to tell us, and this is pretty much, if you ever go to a poetry workshop or a writing workshop, they'll tell you this pretty much every time they see you. Show don't tell, mm -hmm. show, don't tell, show, don't tell. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to think, show me. Mm 
Right. Show it to me. Tell me, tell me the story in such a way that I see the characters. I see them doing what they're doing and I believe they're doing what they're doing. And when things happen to them, I believe those things are really happening. And I'm, I'm, I've put my feet in that guy's shoes or that woman's shoes and I'm experiencing what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And as the story unfolds, I am, uh, it's as if I'm right there. Mm-hmm. I'm right there in the midst of it. But when you start telling me what it means, when you start adding to the details of the story with, hey, by the way, uh, this is what you're supposed to be taking from this. All of a sudden, not only have you broken the fourth wall and you've lifted the reader out of the story, out of the narrative, Mm -hmm. but you've also opened up the possibility, opened up the chance in the reader that they will start to disagree with and contradict and confront Mm -hmm. what you're trying to say in the story. The power of the parables is that you don't know what they mean until after you've already assented to their truth. That after you've already said, that feels right, that feels right, that feels right, yeah, that feels good, that feels right, Uh uh-huh, that's natural, that's the way it is, and And then after that. The conclusion is something that you make. Exactly, you made the conclusion and now you can't back out on it. Jesus even says. Totally. Yeah, I mean, the, the Pharisees are like, getting upset at what he said and right. said, why? Why? I never said you were that. Mm-hmm. I never said you were the uh, stewards of the vineyard. But who, did you see yourself as did that? Did you see yourself as that? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. But he never said, let the reader be aware that when I'm talking about the stewards of the vineyard who killed all the prophets and then killed the son, I am speaking I'm of speaking the of the Pharisees. No, he told the story and they were angry. Mm-hmm. They felt like they were being attacked. Right, And he was able to say, ah, it was you. Mm-hmm. You put yourself in the story in those terms. You could have put yourself in the story as the prophets. You could have put yourself in the story as the son. You, you decided not to. You decided that the closest analog to you was the faithless stewards. Your own words have judged you. Right. You've condemned yourself. That's the power of fiction. And so really the ultimate solution in my mind for a believer who wants to tell a convincing conversion story, mm-hmm. I will at least tell you where to begin. Tell your own story. Right. Each one of our stories is unique. Each one of our stories is true, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you experienced it. Mm-hmm. And learn to tell your own story well. Mm-hmm. Learn, learn to dig into how God organized things in your life in such a way that he was able to bring transformation and conversion to you. Maybe not even in a moment, maybe over a period of time. And be honest with yourself with the details. Yeah. You might even want to tell your conversion story in a different way because some things don't make sense. Right. Or don't fall, the ships don't fall perhaps the way that you would have written it. Just do it. But that's... Just tell it. Not, yeah, that's not the way it happened. <laughs> that's not the Which way it really, really happened. really interesting. I mean, most of the conversion, most of the true conversion stories that I hear are like, whoa, I couldn't have written that. Like, that's out of left field. That's, right. That's very strange that God, I mean, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. That's the whole point. You know what I mean? There's the typical conversion story happens so very rarely. It's a mis- mystery that it is a typical conversion story. Right. It should be like it. So don't try and generalize it. Mm-hmm. Don't try and abstractify your experience into some general story that other people might be able to fit into. Mm-hmm. Because conversion of the people of God and the individuals of the people of God, that's a, that is a special, unique 
story that God has told that you need to learn to retell. Mm -hmm. And by retelling it and also collecting the stories of others, Mm -hmm. it's great to go. If you meet a believer and just tell them, hey, tell me how God saved you. Mm -hmm. Listen to that story. All of a sudden, you start developing a palette of redemption Mm -hmm. where you say, actually, this is the way. This is that what God tells redemption stories. Feels like, yeah, yeah, and um, and so I think that's a really important thing. I think that Christians uh, who are telling stories or trying to tell stories, but also Christians who are receiving stories, can learn a lot from really digging into what exactly makes a redemption story believable, mm-hmm. and test these out. And and if you want a good. Um, source material for redemption stories that don't follow the cliche, I highly suggest reading the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, Test it out, though. Do test them out. Go and go and talk to the go and talk to your unbelieving friends. If you don't have any unbelieving friends, shame on you. No, I'm just joking. But you should get some. Uh, <laughs> Grab some. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> and uh, tell them the conversion stories. Tell them your own conversion story first, and and see mm-hmm. see whether or not. I remember I had an experience with uh, a young man when I was going to Georgia Tech, who this young man was not a believer. He had grown up in a missionary family. Um, but he had left the faith. And when I first met him, he was really well-read. He was very erudite and sophisticated and super cool and cultured, and he drank the best coffee and he listened to the most obscure bands, you know, this kind of guy. And um, I wanted him to like me. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a philosopher major. He'd read everything. His favorite book was like Heidegger's Being in Time or something. It was like total, he's just like this, this, you know... (laughs) Amazingly sophisticated hipster. This is what it takes for you. And, yeah, and I wanted him to like me. Mm-hmm. So when I first started hanging out with him, I figured that it would be. Uh, I figured it would be a thing where, like, if I told him I was a Christian, he mm-hmm. would just immediately scorn and reject me. So I didn't tell him mm-hmm. for a long time, and we had all these conversations. But every conversation we had, we'd go to the coffee shop and we would drink coffee and talk. And every conversation we had. As one conversation piled on to the next, I felt more and more this weight of guilt and shame, really, which was spirit-induced, mm-hmm. where God's saying, why aren't you willing to name me mm-hmm. in front of this man? Are you afraid that he's going to scorn and reject you? And so, finally, I told him, finally, I said to him, by the way, Chris, I'm, or Dean, he was going by Dean, I'm sorry, uh, but I haven't been totally honest with you. I'm actually a believer. And he said... Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I had realized that. I had realized that. And then a little later on in our conversation, I remember I asked them this question, and it's one of those questions where I think Christians really do need to ask this question of their unbelieving friends. I said, Dean, you've spent some time with me. You've talked with me a lot. We've had a lot of conversations. I'm telling you that I have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, do you think I'm lying? Do you think I'm insane? Mm-hmm. Am I out of my mind? Do you think that I don't actually believe what I'm saying right now? Right. And after spending that time with me, what he said to me was, 
I know that you're connected to something, but I don't know what it is. And I was satisfied with that. Hmm. And I feel like if your conversion stories do nothing other than that, that is a valuable service. If all your conversion stories do is convince an unbeliever, hey, I don't believe in God, but you know what? I think this person really does. Mm -hmm. I think this person really does have like a connection. He actually, he seriously really does believes this. believe this. He really has been changed. I don't know how to account for that. Right. But I'm not going to discount it. Right. I'm not going to say it's not the reality. And that's the power of redemption stories. It's also the problem with bad redemption stories because they lend credence to the atheist or unbeliever's belief that all of this is a big fairy tale. Mm -hmm. All of this is a big myth. Or it's naive. It's naive. Because if you tell a it's, naive story. Then it seems naive, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. So we can fix that to a large extent and let's. Um, anyway, we're going to finish up this episode with a song by Warbler off of his record, Sea of Glass. Highly recommend that record. Highly recommend it. This is his testimony. It's called The Idiot. It is named after Dostoevsky's novel by the same name. And it is about Sean Sullivan, who's sort of the mastermind behind Warbler, a singer-songwriter out in Oakland, had been converted in, uh, on the East Coast in Georgia, uh, here with us. And he wrote this song about the journey back when he moved back to California and sort of the expectations of how he would be received going into the trip and how those expectations were disappointed, but in a way that actually emphasized and enforced his trust in God. So it's a really beautiful song, and we hope you enjoy it. The California coast All the way back home A schizophrenic mind So eager to be kind And foolish to believe That there would be understanding That there would be belief Phoenix was on fire Glowing of the sunset was promising the end, a blessing for the dead. The earth was scorched with passion and drinking heat refractions. The idiots coming home through boiling swamps and desert roads with freedom from. The grave, healing for the land, disassembling fantasy with the beauty of reality. Oh. 
the world is rich and beautiful The heavens void unlivable Come back, rejoin our cult It's just a clearing of the throat Now you are the rebel To the hippies and the devil A megaphone downtown Prophet and the clown, incurring wrath of rulers, revealing unjust measures, and they can hear you shout words they'll never care about. The pack knows only doubting these wolves in sheep's clothing. Teaching in the valley Where the children run headlong To the grave